This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Well, good morning. I'm Claire. For those of you who I haven't met before, married. Pardon, Owen. What you're saying to me is it? Is it too close? If I end up doing this throughout, can you turn me down? Because <laughs> I might not do that. Okay. So, yeah, I'm Claire, married to Owen, who's my wonderful husband who <laughs> gives me direction. <laughs> um, and uh, together we lead this church. Um, now, that phrase, I'm Claire, married to Owen, together we lead this church, is a phrase that I say regularly when I get up here. And it's an attempt to begin to introduce myself to you if we haven't already met. Um, but the degree to which you actually know me or think you know me will d- depend on a number of things. For those of you who I've never met before, immediately you may be forming an impression on me based merely on my name. I'm always intrigued when I see a character in a TV drama or um, in a film named Claire. Like, what were they trying to portray? Do you ever do this with your own name? Like, you know, what was the writer thinking of when they chose the name Claire? What does Claire mean to some people? So, yeah, there's Claire Dunphy, uh, the extremely competitive and over-controlling wife of Phil in Modern Family. Not like me, thank you. Or... Claire Underwood, the power-hungry, cold, ruthless co-villain in House of Cards. You're supposed to say, not like me again, yeah. (laughs) Or the workaholic perfectionist, Claire Deering, who falls in love with, wait for it, Owen in Jurassic World. Can you believe it? There's a film with a Claire and Owen couple in it. But a name will conjure up an impression for us based on what we've previously experienced. Have you ever come across um, someone with the same name as that really mean person at school? And it's so hard not to have an immediate dislike for this new person, even though you've never met them before. Or maybe it's the fact that I'm a church leader that will shape your immediate impression of me, whether that's been a positive experience for you in the past or not. Or maybe it's the way I'm dressed, the fact that I'm married, or even my northern accent. The truth is, if we haven't already met, the way you perceive me or feel you know me will have very little to do with who I am, but far more about your life experiences or what you've been told by someone else about me. This talk today is the second in a box set series entitled, What is God Like? Last time we looked at why it matters what we think about what God is like, his character and his nature and how that affects who we are. But today I want to look at how do we find out what God is like? Just like your initial impression of me is based more on your experiences or maybe what someone else has told you about me, so it can be with our impression of God. As a child, I was taken to church, and my parents and my church culture taught me what God was like. Rightly or wrongly, I accepted and affirmed as true what I received from them. Throughout my adult life, I have continued to receive from people I trust and respect, from the culture and environments I live live within, the books I read, the talks I listen to, and so on. And so I personally interpret what I receive and make decisions on what I believe. 
And of course, it's not just what we receive, but it's what we actually experience that shapes our view. For example, when I read about God as Father in the Bible, my understanding of this is first shaped by my experience of my dad. How else could I understand the concept of Father except through something I've already experienced? For me, fortunately, that's a positive experience, but I know that's not the same for everyone. But what if I'd been born to another family in a different culture and religious tradition? I would likely have grown up accepting and affirming a distinctly different understanding of God. There are possibly as many different versions or understandings of God as there are people. And of course, our understandings and beliefs change over time. The God that I prayed to when I was 20 years old looks different to the God I pray to now, although I give him the same name. God hasn't changed, but my definition of him has. Our life experiences, what we receive through our cultures and our religious traditions and our personal interpretations become a filter or lens through which we understand God and what he's like, his character and his nature. We develop unconscious biases without even realizing. I suppose that's why they're unconscious. Um, Sometimes this can be helpful, but sometimes not. Lenses can help us see more clearly, but sometimes they can distort. You know, often rejection of God is a rejection of our own image of God, which is quite possibly not God at all. The truth is, if there is a God, we don't get to make him up. God cannot merely be a reflection of our own imagination. A God who is real and alive must exist beyond our puny understanding, bigger than any box that we might ever try and contain him in. Let me ask you a question. Through what lens might you be viewing God? What experiences have you had and what have you received that shapes your view of who God is and what he's like? his character, and his nature. If there is a God, we don't get to choose who he is. We need him to reveal himself to us in a way he can be known. The Bible shows us a God who wants to be known and is always committed to making this happen. Apparently, we are now 73 sleeps away from Christmas troubling, I know. Um, The name often used for Jesus at Christmas is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the word incarnation, referring to Jesus' birth, literally means the enfleshment of God. God has shown us who he is and what he's like, exactly what he's like in the flesh and blood of the historical Jesus. In the Bible, the book of Hebrews says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. 
And in John, we read Jesus' announcement before he dies. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So if this is true, Jesus was and is God, and God is exactly like Jesus. When I say exactly like Jesus, I don't mean we can reduce all that God is down to a first century Jewish male. Nor could we say that anyone who encountered the historical Jesus Christ could know all there is to know about God in his fullest sense. But Jesus Christ shows us the perfect revelation of God's character and nature because he is God. So the lens that God invites us to look through in order to know him is God himself in Jesus Christ. So as we continue throughout this series exploring what is God like, we're going to do it through the lens of Jesus Christ, through his life, death and resurrection. And today we're going to start by looking at Jesus' favourite image of God, which was Father. 70 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as Father. So this is a pretty important image. But before we go any further, let me just be clear that God is not biologically male. That is not a box we can put God in. There are plenty of verses that talk about God in mother language as well, but that's another talk for another day. And also, I appreciate that for some of us, the image of Father is not a positive one, and my prayer for you today is that by looking through the lens of Jesus, rather than the lens of your own experience, that this may redefine what Father could mean for you. So today we're going to turn to one of Jesus's most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son. <clears throat> so parables were like short made up stories with stereotypical characters and settings that people could relate to from everyday life. And as people were listening to the story and what was being said on the surface, the idea was to listen even harder for what the story was really saying below the surface. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So before we read it, two quick things as background. Firstly, tax collectors were hated and considered traitors. They were local people working for the occupying Romans, and they were often corrupt, taxing people heavily and pocketing the profits for themselves. They were despised. Secondly, the vast majority of people lived below the poverty line. It was a struggle even to survive. So they weren't always good at keeping the religious laws, like not working on the Sabbath or offering sacrifices, which they would have needed to buy beforehand. And this infuriated the religious leaders and they would condemn them for it. So beginning the story in Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So straight away, we see there are two audiences listening to the story. There's the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are complaining about Jesus behind his back for associating with these unholy people. And then the ordinary people, the sinners, as the Pharisees thought of them. Nowadays, we tend to think of the Pharisees as the bad guys in these stories, but that's not how they were seen then. 
The Pharisees were the ones who were the most passionate about their faith, who cared about holiness and the slipping standards in society. The Pharisees were convinced that the reason the Messiah hadn't yet come was because of the sinfulness of the people. And by this they meant the ordinary people, the poor people. So they heaped shame on them and kept them at arm's length. So Jesus tells his parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. Now, the idea of giving your children a bit of their inheritance before you die is not a strange thing these days, nor is it strange that your kids might leave home or even move abroad. But back then, it was very different. We'd have heard a sharp intake of breath from the crowd, both from the poor people and from the Pharisees, because in those days, you would never abandon the family business. And you would never willingly sell the family land because that is your only way of feeding yourselves. It would have been passed down through the generations. Selling the land would have been utterly shocking to everyone listening. Shameful that the son would demand it, but just as shameful that the father would agree to it. Both are acting shamefully. Verse 13. Not long after, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So if the, the start of the story wasn't shameful enough, now it gets even worse. Here he is, the son of a Jewish father leaving the land of Israel, which symbolizes leaving the God of Israel, and working for a Gentile, a non-Jew. Selfishly risking the family's future and then taking the worst job imaginable for a, uh, for a Jew, looking after pigs. Utterly scandalous. The Pharisees are thinking, this story illustrates everything that's wrong with Israel. It's just the kind of behavior that someone needs to speak up against. They're loving it. When, verse 17, when the son comes to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So the Pharisees were absolutely loving the story to this point. They'll have been thinking, ah, we see where this story is going. It's all about people getting what they deserve. When the son comes home, he'll be humiliated, he'll be shamed, he'll be beaten, he'll be made to work as a servant. We see what Jesus is saying, that above all else, God is a God of justice and sin demands punishment. And the poor people are thinking exactly the same, except they're not loving it. Because they know what it's like to feel desperate and to mess up. 
They'd have been thinking that they must be the object of God's anger too because they've messed up just like the sun and what the sun has coming to him is what they've got coming to them as well. So everyone listening is expecting the same ending. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. So the father runs out to meet him. Why does he do that? He wants to reach his son before his son reaches, his, reaches the village. He wants to, to protect him from the shame and the abuse. Now, respectable Jewish heads of family would never run. It was totally undignified. He would have had to gather up his robe in his hands and expose his bare legs. More gasps from the crowd. This is so humiliating. The son's a mess. He smells like a pig. But the father still embraces him and kisses him. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He starts this speech that he's practiced, but the father cuts him off. The father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The father refuses to receive him as a servant and insists on receiving him as a son. And only the best will do. There's no holding back. The best robe, the fattened calf, a ring on his finger and a feast to celebrate. So that's nearly the end of the story. At this point, we're all thinking we've just heard the good news ending. But the Pharisees wouldn't have seen it like that at all. Everything in this story so far has been bad news. A shameful son and a shameful father. They're still waiting on tender hooks for the hero to emerge. And here he comes now. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the Pharisees are thinking, at last, here's our boy. The son has acted shamefully. The father has acted shamefully. But now... The older brother will put things right. Someone who has standards, who cares about right or wrong. The older brother is refusing to go in. Um, by refusing to go in, he's showing everyone where he stands. Verse 29. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. 
and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, some of us may be thinking that the older brother does seem to have a point here. After all, he didn't do anything wrong. Surely he's got a fair complaint. Actually, no, not really. The way that Jewish inheritance laws worked was that the, when the father divided up the estate, the younger son got one third and the older son got two thirds. And yet he still complains, you never give me anything. And then refusing to come to the party, being angry at him and criticizing him and making a scene and telling the father who he is and isn't allowed to forgive, all of that is just as dishonorable. And do you know what the main complaint was that the older brother had against his father? Too much grace and mercy and kindness. Too much understanding. Too much forgiveness. So what will those audiences have been take, be taken away from the story right now? Well, the Pharisees will be struggling to figure out how the good guy, as they saw it, has suddenly ended up being the bad guy. Worst of all, Jesus seems to be saying that just like the older brother in the story misread the father, they've also been misreading God the Father. They've misunderstood his character and nature. They've shaped a God in their image rather than shaping themselves in God's image. And the poor people and the tax collectors are overjoyed because it seems there's another chance for those of us who get ourselves in a mess. When we turn to God and come just as we are, still smelling of pigs, he runs to us and embraces us with open arms. We don't even have to have a good speech and get all the words right. The word prodigal means recklessly extravagant, being lavish to the point of foolishness, which is exactly what the younger son did with the inheritance. But this was only the surface meaning because the story isn't really about the son. The story is about the father. And when Jesus was telling this parable, he was saying, this is what your heavenly father's love looks like. It's recklessly extravagant and it's lavish beyond the point of foolishness. Now, you may be thinking that sounds a bit extreme, too easy, cheap grace. But be careful that's what the older brother thought too. Does this mean that God's not a God of justice? Of course not. But we'll leave that for another talk. Or maybe you're thinking this is too good to be true. This is only a story Jesus told. It didn't actually happen. God's not really like that. Well, let's go back to looking through the lens of Jesus we were talking about earlier. Remembering what Jesus is like is exactly what God is like. So what was Jesus like, the historical Jesus? Well, think about Zacchaeus, 
the tax collector. We know how tax collectors were viewed. Jesus makes the first move. He spots him up a tree. He calls out to him and invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for tea. Or the marginalized Samaritan woman at the well who's been married five times and is too ashamed to come out when everyone else is around. But Jesus approaches her. He knows all about her and he doesn't judge her, but offers her himself. Or the woman caught in adultery who was about to be stoned. Jesus steps in and rescues her and not waiting for an apology, he pronounces her forgiven. And I could go on. Jesus showed us in himself what fatherhood meant to him. Extravagant, unconditional love. Affirmation, affection, belonging, scandalous forgiveness and inclusion. A father who wins through love rather than threats. Is this the kind of father you think of? When you think of God? Maybe you've considered him to be a bit like a distant father. Removed. Uninterested. Maybe even neglectful. Certainly not trustworthy. Or maybe you think of him as austere. Strict. Ready to punish. Angry. Or maybe some hybrid Father Christmas type figure who gives you nice things, but it's conditional on whether you've been good or not. If there's a mismatch between the way you view God and the way Jesus shows us, do you think you could exchange your image of God for the one Jesus shows us? I've asked uh, Joel and Juliet to come up and play a song for us now. They're just going to come up. And it's called Run to the Father. And I just want to give you this time to reflect. This time just for each of us personally, just to reflect on what I've been talking about. It may be that you felt Father God nudging you to, to come closer to him and experience his love afresh or maybe for the first time. So just take this time to respond to him if you'd like to. Or it might be that you'd like to consider the questions I just asked. They'll appear on the screen. Is your image of the Father different from Jesus' image? And if so, could you exchange your image for Jesus' image? Or you might simply just want to sit and listen to these words of the song. But whatever it is, just take this time for yourself and use it in whatever way you like. Father God, thank you that you desperately want us to see you for who you really are. So much so that you sent Jesus to die, to demonstrate your love. Father, I just pray that you'll help us to grasp this, that we would uh, experience and fully know your embrace, your unconditional love, your acceptance, your affirmation. Help us to see you for who you really are. Thank you, Father.
Amen.